The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Yes, I've been um, away in Massachusetts for six weeks teaching at the Insight Meditation Society with their annual three-month course. It's very wonderful to be teaching that retreat, and it's also wonderful to be back. (laughs) Is it on? Okay, great. So, I reflected, as I was reflecting on what to talk about today, I I had some some thoughts, a kind of a core of what I'd like to talk about, and, and then I thought, well, to talk about that, I have to talk about this, and then I have to talk about that. So I'm going to start kind of bigger and then move kind of into my topic for the day, which I guess I could call something like the core wishes and the core truths. But to start, I'm going to talk about suffering, <laughs> dukkha. I think most of you are familiar with the fact that the teachings of the Buddha really um, explore. In fact, in one, one point the Buddha said, what I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. And so the, the understanding of suffering is a huge um, framing of how the Buddha taught and what the Buddha taught. Pretty much everything he talked about was directed towards helping us understand suffering and uh, let go of that suffering, release, end that suffering. His, uh, one of his key understandings is um, kind of counter to the way that we usually think about suffering. We often think about suffering as being a result of things that are happening outside of us. We're kind of these, oh reeds in the wind being whipped around by conditions or something like that, you know, that we f- feel like the, 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 the reason we're suffering is stuff in the world. And if only that stuff would change or we could fix it or control it or change it, then we wouldn't be suffering anymore. We wouldn't be confused or frustrated. I mean, suffering, this term suffering, I want to just say something about that too, this term suffering in the Buddhist context is very broad, as well as very deep. We uh, often, when we use that word in English, we think of the big sufferings. We think of, you know, uh, friends getting cancer or parents dying or loved ones being very ill. We think of the big sufferings. In the Buddhist understanding, things like a flash of frustration and a flash of impatience, that too is suffering. And so we could call it, this word dukkha in the Pali, we could call it unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction with what's happening. So in the, in the kind of more subtle levels, dukkha also means this. Suffering also means this level, as well as the deeper levels of suffering. And so the Buddha really kind of turned things around. He said, you know, in his exploration, in his understanding, in looking at what was happening in his mind and looking at how it was responding to the world, he came to the understanding that the reason we have this dukkha, this 
experience of things not being the way we want them to be, being dissatisfied with the world, struggling with the world. Struggle is another good word for dukkha, I think. Struggling. When we're struggling with the world, it's not because inherently because of stuff in the world that we're suffering. There is stuff that we react to out there. And certainly there are injustices in the world. And yet, when we have the experience of things being wrong or off or struggling with experience, it's not inherently because of what's happening out there. It's because there is wanting things to be other than they are arising in the mind. Craving for things to be other than they are is arising in the mind. And so he turned around and said, that's actually the, the reason we feel this struggle with life, with experience, isn't because of the experience itself. It's in our own minds. There's a, a kind of a, a clamping down or clinching around things. And that is the reason we struggle, we suffer. This is actually really good news. I mean, it sounds potentially like, why would that be good news? But on the other hand, if it is inherently what's in the world, inherently the situations in the world that are the reason we suffer, there's not much hope for happiness. But given that there is something going on in our minds, a habit a pattern of basically wanting things to be different. That because it's a phenomenon in our minds, it's possible to change our minds. So this is the, one of the core teachings of the Buddha. It's possible to change our minds. So... Um, Given that I could talk for you know, a long time about just that topic, but I want to get to my, my topic that I want to talk about today. So given that um, suffering or dissatisfaction or struggle is created in our minds, sometimes people ask, I've had many people ask me, why, then, would our minds do that? You know, why on earth would we be designed like that? You know, so that's a good question, and I've spent a long time exploring that in my experience, <coughs> reflecting on that very question. And I've come up with a few things that I'd like to share with you around that. Why is it that, we, that our minds do this? I think that as human beings, we have a kind of innate or biological kind of movement towards well-being. Some um, neurobiologists talk about this as a homeostasis mechanism, that our, our brains are designed in a way to take us in a direction of more ease, It will orient us in that direction.
And in a way, this kind of wish for well-being, this wish for ease, is connected to what the uh, teachings of the Buddha talk about as being metta, or loving-kindness. That very deep within us is a wish for ease, for peace, for happiness. So that's kind of in the middle, just kind of almost inherent in our being human, that there is this wish for happiness, for ease, for well-being. The word metta I used a moment ago is a Pali word that means, um, basically means like kindness or loving kindness, friendliness, caring. And so inside of us there is this inner caring for our own well-being at the least. And we have kind of this movement towards well-being in our minds. And yet, our minds are, are, are the way our minds work, given the conditions in the world and given the conditions of our mind, is that going towards that well-being, going towards ease or happiness, the mechanism, the kind of, what we could call the processes of the mind and body, I think the organism, the organism goes for the fastest, most direct path to ease that it can find. And generally, that means having what's pleasant and getting rid of what's unpleasant. In a very simple way, you know, we, you know, from kind of very young, we kind of in an almost, uh, you know, well, in an organic, very um, simple fashion, we gravitate towards the pleasant and we don't like what's unpleasant. And this is connected to that wish, that wish for ease in our, in our, in our experience. And so we're gravitating towards the pleasant, moving away from the unpleasant, just very similarly to a single-celled amoeba who would gravitate towards nourishment and move away from a noxious environment. So it's, a, it's a kind of a pattern in, our, in our, um, the structure of life that we move towards pleasant and move away from unpleasant. And yet in our system, in our system as human beings, we actually have quite a bit of processes in between pleasant and deciding to move towards pleasant and unpleasant and deciding to move away from unpleasant. There's all kinds of mental phenomenon going on in there. We see what we like, we think about it, we, we think about why it would be good, we create fantasies about it and we move towards that. You know, so there's a lot of stuff going on in the mind and this is this point, this is the point where the Buddha talked about craving. That when something is pleasant, we experience a wanting to go towards that pleasant. When something's unpleasant, we experience a a craving, a wanting to not be with that. So there's that kind of mechanism going on. And um, when we are not mindful, when we don't have the skill or the tool of looking at what's actually going on in our system, 
while we're moving towards the pleasant, moving away from the unpleasant, we are being deceived by somehow thinking that this is the way to happiness. Our minds will do something like this. It will see the pleasant thing or... I mean, it could be something, something like... Um, it's, it could be material things. It could be a state of being. It could be you know, wanting to be seen or liked. So we want to move in that direction. Our, our whole system kind of wants to orient towards what it finds pleasant. And so the, um, the mind creates a kind of a plan of how to get there and creates this kind of idea about what it's going to be like when it gets that thing or gets that state of mind. And that idea is also pleasant. Even when we're working with getting rid of something, you know, if we're trying to control something, you know, the feeling of being in control, the feeling of, yes, I can fix this, I can change this, that feels really good too. So even when something's unpleasant, if we, you know, create this idea in our mind, a plan of how we're going to negotiate and navigate getting rid of that thing from our life, that feels good. It's a pleasant idea in our minds that we're going to be able to control that. And so we are, again, oriented through this kind of mechanism towards pleasant. We've created an idea in our minds. We've created this thought of, yeah, that's going to be so great when I get rid of this. Or, boy, that's going to feel, or that's going to be so great when I get this. And, boy, that's going to feel really good when I get rid of that. And we are in that moment in a kind of a fantasy. We are drawn to an idea, a construction of our mind. And that feels good. Not to... Uh, we, don't, we don't really see in that moment that we are orienting or going for or that our pleasant the pleasantness of that comes from a thought an idea in our minds and at the same time because that thought or idea is kind of pleasant we are missing this is the this is one of the keys to why we suffer i think <laughs> we are missing that at the same time that we are uh, wanting the pleasant, moving in that, you know, in that fantasy, oh, this is going to be so great. When we're in that fantasy, we are missing that the wanting, the wanting to have that thing or wanting to get rid of that thing doesn't feel good. Wanting, craving, has a kind of constricted kind of quality to it. But because we are in our fantasy of wanting something, we're kind of living in that world, which you see in meditation, right? You see this in our meditation. We create this world and then we're disconnected from what's actually happening in, in reality. How easy it is for that to happen. And so we, we've created this world, we're living in that world, and we are disconnected with what's actually going on in the present moment, which is a feeling of unsatisfactoriness. As soon as we want something, 
a feeling of lack springs up. As soon as we want something, there's inherently a feeling of something's wrong, something's off. So what mindfulness begins to do is to reveal this unsatisfactoriness of wanting. So this is one of the reasons why we suffer because our minds are confused. We have deluded ourselves into living in our thoughts instead of in what's actually happening in the present moment. If we could magically make our thoughts be uh, completely happy, um, always in the fantasy of getting what we want, and never having reality impinge on us, that might be a good strategy. But reality does impinge on us. We have the recognition of things, you know, things that we get that we like. They're impermanent. They, they have a tendency to go away. And we tend to not have control necessarily over what's happening in the world. And we will be what the Buddha says, joined with things that are displeasing. That will happen in our lives. It's not a mistake. It's the way things are. It's a reality of the world. So there's this kind of movement towards well-being. And when we start paying attention to experience, we see the... Uh, the truth of it's our mind that's kind of craving, wanting things to be other than they are. So that craving then, this is, this is another area where I feel, I've been thinking about this quite a bit lately, another area where I think we suffer. So that, that craving, wanting things to be other than they are, points back to two key things in our experience. One of those threads is this wish that I started with, the wish for well-being. This very natural wish for happiness, for ease, for peace. This is a very natural thing in our lives. A lot of our suffering actually comes because that wish for well-being meets the other thread, which is reality, meets the impermanent nature of existence. Everything is impermanent. Everything, because it's impermanent, is unreliable. In a moment, I'll try to explore that a little bit more deeply. And so there's the the experience of dukkha, the experience of struggle, of dissatisfaction, of frustration, of anxiety, of confusion, of fear. And that often 
when we explore and, and deepen into it. And this I've seen over and over again in my experience, that often underneath some kind of suffering is basically a wish for happiness. So fear, for example, kind of comes back to the core wish for safety. Over and over again I've seen this. I'll, t- I'll give you an example of this. I've, I've used this example before. Um, in September 2011, 2001, sorry, in September 2001, I was visiting my family during the attacks on the World Trade Center. So I was in Tennessee when that happened. And um, the planes were shut down, and so my plane was scheduled to come back on the second day after the planes began flying again. And so with some trepidation, I went to the airport and got on my plane. And there was bad weather where my parents lived. I was leaving from Tennessee, and there was bad weather. And so my plane was quite delayed. And I had to make a connection in Houston, and I missed my connection. So I arrived in Houston and got myself a hotel room and um, was, you know, hanging out in my hotel room finding, you know, a ride for the morning and things like that. And the power went out in the hotel. And I looked outside the window. It was out for a little while, and I was completely dark. It was so dark in there. there I didn't have a flashlight with me. There were no, like, little red lights anywhere. But, and I was using my, my Indiglo watch, you know, to find my way to the bathroom. It was so dark in there. And I looked outside the window, and it was dark everywhere. It wasn't just the hotel that had lost power. As far as I could tell, it was the city that had lost power. And here I was at George Bush International Airport. And my mind went to terrorist attack. I thought, what, what a great symbolic target for terrorists. And so fear arose. A lot of fear arose. And it was quite, quite strong, very strong fear. And because it was so strong, I started to fall back on what I understood to be the antidote to fear, which was metta practice. And I started saying the metta phrases to myself. And when I got to, may I be safe? There was like this real resonance. Yes, that's what I want. May I be safe. May all beings be safe, in fact. Yes, there was a strong resonance with that. And when I connected with that, the fear actually went away. It was kind of surprising when I could connect with that very strong inner wish for safety for all beings. The fear went away. And then the mind would kind of start thinking again about terrorists and creating scenarios like, oh, we're going to all have to line up in the hallway. And, you know, it went wild. My mind just went wild. It was quite amazing. And then, so it would forget the metaphrases for a while. It would create the fear. It would construct that. And then I would remind myself, come back to the wish. Come back to the wish. And the wish for well-being, for safety for myself and all beings was very, very strong, very powerful. And that, that moment really helped me to understand the connection between the wish, the core wish for safety 
and the fear. Because the fear, it felt to me very much like the, the fear, the strong fear and the strong wish kind of had the same root. In fact, that root was the metta. That wish for safety was the root, the, the deepest thing inside. And again, in this way of the mind um, thinking it knows the way to well-being through controlling, having, getting rid of, when the mind went into its habit, it started constructing, how can I control this situation? How can I, how can I figure this out? What can I do about this? And the fear would skyrocket again. And so I could see that the, the core wish for safety, for well-being, for myself, for all beings, was the deepest thing. And the, the fear was basically a reaction to impermanent, unreliable. Impermanent, unreliable world. The core core truths of the world, uncontrollable, the three core truths. I'll, I'll frame them really simply today. I won't go into them in great detail, but impermanent. Everything that we experience is impermanent. It is inherently not, there's nothing out there that is inherently a place where we can say, yes, if I get that thing, that experience, I'll be happy forever. doesn't work that way because every experience is inherently impermanent. And because of that impermanence is inherently unreliable as a place to say, yes, that's where I'm going to find happiness. We may, our minds have, our minds have created the, you know, the, the, uh, that, pattern that I talked about earlier. It's like, oh yeah, maybe I can create a little pocket of happiness here. I can live in that for a little while, but it will fall apart. And so, impermanent, unreliable, out of control. That's a way of framing the three core truths of reality, of the world. That is, that is the way the world is. And we have these wishes. So we have these core truths. And we have these core wishes to be happy, to be healthy, to be safe, to be at ease. And when these core wishes meet these core truths, that's where the craving is born right there. So that's what I found in, the, in that moment. The fear was basically the recognition. So there's the, there was the, the, the core wish, the deep wish for happiness. The core truth of out of control and the mind basically rebelling against that core truth. Saying, no, no, no. <laughs> should be able to control this. And that's where the fear was born. Because the, that, that core truth basically was undeniable at that point.
And so one of the things that happens, you know, so I think that the, when, when the, um, we, we experience some kind of struggle, some kind of suffering, it's often connected to, I won't say always, I can't say always, but it does seem over and over again I've seen this thread back to one of these core wishes. So, another misunderstanding we have, I think, is especially through our mindfulness practice, as we start exploring mindfulness, as we start, as we start um, investigating our um, struggles, start opening to them with mindfulness, we do see that, like I could see that that fear was created by the mind just spiraling out of control, spiraling in reactivity to react to the fact that I didn't feel safe. So there's the wish to be safe and the feeling of not being safe. And that's where the fear was born. So when the mind starts to see that you know, that with mindfulness, when mindfulness and wisdom start to see that the mind is kind of contributing to its suffering, sometimes we, we create this idea of like, you know, we see patterns happen over and over and over again. You know, we, we, see, our, we see our patterns, like for me, a pattern of impatience, a pattern of um, um, self-hatred, over and over again, seeing that pattern over and over again. And at some points, I really felt like, you know, this pattern is wholly bad. You know, it's just useless, this pattern. If I could take a scalpel and, like, find all the edges of that and cut out that and just get rid of it, that would be, that would be better. And yet what I've seen over and over again happen when I really meet a pattern with mindfulness, with caring, opening to just what's here, what's here. Just fear. This is fear. Confusion. Confusion is like this. Can I meet that without fighting with it? It begins to reveal kind of how it's created and put together. And this is what I've seen over and over again, that in the middle of our suffering is often this core wish to be safe, to be happy, to be at ease, to be healthy. And so that idea of taking a scalpel and cutting the whole thing out, excising it, doesn't work very well because that core wish is very deep. In fact, it's a wholesome wish for our own well-being. We can't actually get rid of it. So, one of the things that we have to recognize is, I mean, one of the other things I, I started to see going on in my mind was as I recognized so much of my reactivity was born out of a kind of a the meeting of these two, the core truths and the core wishes, as I started to see this, this 
conflict arise between these two. I saw that the mind did something like, well, if things are impermanent, unreliable, out of control, I shouldn't want to be happy. I shouldn't want to be safe. So the mind was trying to do that for a while. That's suffering too. (laughs) You know, because that's basically aversion to a very wholesome wish, pattern, a wholesome kind of orientation of our minds. And so somehow what we have to explore, somehow what I, I see, this, like these, these core wishes, these core truths, is how we can allow both. How can we open to, fully open to the wish for our well-being, our safety, and fully acknowledge that things are unreliable, impermanent, and out of control? These two wishes can coexist side by side without conflict. The wish itself does not demand to be filled. I think that's one of the keys to that deep wish. The wish itself is simply the, the, the movement towards well-being. But it doesn't, you know, it, that, that core wish, the meta wish, the, the wish for our own well-being, our own safety, when it is imbued with wisdom, it understands the truths at the same time. It understands that, yes, this is a deep wish, and things are unreliable, and things are out of control. That's where peace lies, when we can open to, fully open to that wish for the well-being of ourselves and others, and fully open to the truths. Now, how do we do that? (laughs) It comes back to the suffering. (laughs) You know, as I said earlier, you know, it's like that suffering is born from the meeting of these two. And whenever we are suffering, whenever we are struggling, there's threads to both of those. There's threads to the core wishes and the core truths. And so when we... One danger here might be that, you know, in thinking about this, it's like when we, we recognize, oh, I'm suffering, then we might try to go, oh, well, okay, everything's impermanent, and okay, I shouldn't want this to be other than it is. But what is really happening is that we do want things to be other than they are. And that's what we're being asked to open to at that moment. We're being asked to open to the very struggle itself. And opening to, for me really means, it's very simple. What's this? What's obvious about this struggle? It might be sadness, or it might be anger, or it might be 
body tension. It might be contraction in the throat. What's obvious about this? And that, over, over and over as we meet these struggles, it's like the, that, the mind that meets it without trying to fix or change or control that struggle, but opens to it. It's like the, the layers of that challenge begin to, the layers of that struggle begin to kind of reveal themselves. And it reveals the threads to both the core wishes and the core truths. And so, truly, every time we are suffering, the pathway towards opening to the wisdom of things as they are and opening to the inherent like compassion of our system. It's there in the suffering. It's not that we have to like cut that thing out. It's a pointer for us. It's, it's a guide if we allow ourselves to meet that suffering, it will guide us towards opening to the truths and owning the wishes, fully owning, yes, I wish to be happy. Maybe that's enough. Do you have comments, questions? You say suffering is on the outside. I mean, inside. I say suffering is all on the outside. You can't. You can't give me one example where suffering does not come from. Where suffering comes from is generated internally. Well, it's not triggered by something outside. Triggered, yes. But it's It's, outside. It's It's triggered by something outside. But that thing that's happening outside does not inherently have to trigger the suffering. That's, that's the reframing the Buddha pointed to. It's a real turning of the mind. I, no, I, I have an opposite view of that. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I'll prove it to you. Where's your cell phone? See? Well, you, yeah. <laughs> see, I triggered you. <laughs> it's all external. I mean, I, I, it, it, it's something that's outside what ourselves. What do you mean you triggered me? You had look. You, you, I, I made you... I made you you had some anxiety, maybe. No, I didn't have any anxiety. <laughs> well, you might have. It's true, I might have. Yeah. But there's been a lot of work in this mind to let go of reactivity. It's the reactivity. Yes, there are things happening in the world. Yeah. Yes, they are impermanent, unreliable, <laughs> out of control. And we tend to react to them. We tend to have that, you know clenching or wanting things to be other than they are but that's an internal process but, and it is not necessary but you didn't get you didn't answer the question you give me an example where something is internal that that's that causes suffering that's inside our brain inside our mind reactivity reactivity go ahead yeah but it's all external oh one thing i reactivity I, I do, is not external i do i sit to not to get rid of suffering in me, 
but to get suffering out of the world. That's how I sit. Uh-huh. So that's, I don't know if that's opposite. <laughs> There's, and, and that wish, too. I mean, that's the, one of the core that's wishes as well. That's also suffering. That's one of the core wishes as well. May the world be safe. May all beings be safe. That is one of the core wishes. Yeah. Go ahead. On Sunday, I was in a, a training uh, for a new database system at our church. It was being led by the person who's been leading the project. And without boring this group with all the gory details um, that led up, but I have been feeling for some time that this, that his leadership doesn't give me enough assurance that it's in control. And as president of the church, I feel some, maybe misplaced, (laughs) anxiety that I need to (laughs) exercise a certain amount of supervision of this. Uh So he said something about how certain kinds of information he thought should be entered. And I strongly disagreed, and I behaved badly by making a real issue of it in that session. I have been suffering ever since that moment because I could have, could have caused him to... I certainly hurt... I, I imagine I hurt him in some way, mm-hmm. his feelings. Mm-hmm. I disrupted the process that he had set up for that training... Um, and I could possibly have caused him to decide he didn't want to do this anymore if he was going to have to put up with the likes of me. Um, and so I'm very clear, and I've been clear even before this wonderful talk this morning, that I caused the suffering, probably his some, but certainly a lot for me. Um... I could have, I at least in theory, reacted differently. My question to you is, having done all this, what would you or Buddhism say about attempting to resolve the matter with this person, this guy? You know, is it all a matter of mindfulness I- on my part? Because my awareness of Western psychology would say something like, go have a, uh, go air the whole thing with him. Well, I mean, the, the, um, when we open to the fact that we have caused suffering, you know, in this case, causing him suffering as well as yourself suffering, that your reactivity, which is an inner thing, you know, an optional Although, you know, it sure didn't feel didn't optional, feel optional, at, optional the at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but and, yes, and, it was optional. Yeah, yeah. So there's that the reactivity creating the the situation. With that recognition, the um, the mind, the mindfulness, the the mindfulness is the first thing that happened. I mean, the first way in. 
you know, that we actually start to see. You, you saw, oh, look at this. This was created by this reactivity. It was created by this reactivity. And there's regret for having done that. A sense potentially of wanting to make amends. So, yes, Buddhism does not say, just sit back and be mindful. <laughs> it Actually, when we touch into those core wishes, compassion in particular wants to respond. Compassion wants to respond to alleviate suffering. So the, um, the movement that's happening in your heart of the feelings of regret, the feelings of perhaps wanting to make amends, watch those and see, you know, is there, is there a movement to action? And in that movement to action, we do need to take care that, you know, because some of that movement to action could be back, I want to get back in control. And, <laughs> oh, and, yes. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, we don't wait for completely pure motivation to act in the world. Right. We can't wait until completely pure motivation to act in the world. And yet, if you can, in that mov- mo- movement of seeing the regret, the sense of, yes, this was suffering that I was, that, that was created by the reactivity that arose in this being. And compassion for both yourself and the other is present and wishing to do something. So Buddhism doesn't mean non-action. It absolutely does not mean non-action. Just be mindful of everything. It it opens to those core wishes and with wisdom and compassion together, action follows. And we will be acting from delusion <laughs> until we're, you know, in, for a long time. Oh, yeah, time. this event had all those, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and even, delusion. Even the movement greed. to... Even the movement to... Um, make amends may have some delusion in there. And yet, if you can, in that action, connect to the, com- the wish for compassion, you know, it will, it will mitigate some of that delusion. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Um, so, back to Buddhism... Um, if, if you affirm that the insight is freedom from suffering, uh, does it go further and actually address you know, why we're here and why we're conscious we're here, or is the insight freedom from wanting to know that? Um, I don't know that there would be freedom from want. There'd be f- there there. The 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 the. Teachings of the Buddha don't go to that realm. Actually, the Buddha actually said, what I teach is suffering in its end. He said, he gave an analogy. He picked up a handful of leaves from the forest floor and, um, and said, which is greater, the number of leaves in the forest or the number of leaves in my hand? And they said, well, of course, the number of leaves in your hand are less than the number of leaves in the forest. 
He said, in a similar way, what I teach is much less than what I know and understand. I teach suffering and its end because that's what will free the mind. That's what, where peace lies. So he was oriented towards freedom from suffering. What else comes along with that um, revelation? He was silent about. So, Well, I don't know whether he knew or not. He said he was not teaching us all that he knew. So I don't know. What, what, what comes along with that freedom? But that's, that was his orientation, was that peace, basically. Peace within the midst of all of the triggering stuff of the world. And the Buddha also, like he took action. I'll give you this example as the last thing, you know. The Buddha... Um, was aware that there were water rights issues in his the, the area where he lived, the kingdom area where he lived. And so there was a water war that was going to be um, beginning. And he went and stood in the middle of the battlefield to try to stop that war. They stopped while he was standing in the battlefield. But he couldn't stand there forever. So he took action. He took action to teach, to teach us about freedom from suffering. So he took action in that way to alleviate the suffering of the world, but not by trying so much to... I mean, when we change our minds, we change the world. When we change our minds, we change the world. Yeah? And the last... I thought that was a great question. Um, I, I totally agree with you that suffering is inside of us. Uh, it's the perception that we have of something, an event that occurs outside. and Just like happiness, we can be in hell and feel you know, happy, or we can be in paradise and feel sad, you know, depending on how we internally feel about things. Right? My question really is, when you talk about the Buddhism, talked about the end of suffering, and getting to that point of peace. Um, and I think that's the first step. You know, because without that, then you can't proceed to something deeper than that. And, and the question I had, or proposed question was, you talked about those um, wishes, core wishes, core realities. And I'm looking at, you know, a, a vision of the core wishes as a tree with branches and the reality of where it lives. And then at the root, is love at the root of those core wishes? Because if, uh, yes, you look, if, yes, if you look at love... That's my, that's my, yes, love is at the root of those core wishes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's my understanding. And wisdom is our experience of the core truths. And so love and wisdom join together to free our minds. And we should stop. Mm -hmm. Thank you.